Well, I've got us just about time. We're cutting her close tonight, aren't we? We're going to introduce a new book to you tonight. It's Malachi. You may want to open your Bible there, although we will not be handling, per se, a text proper, but I think you're going to find this a fascinating book and hopefully a very applicable book. The first verse of Malachi reads this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. That's how verse 1 begins. And before we begin our journey tonight, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious inspired scriptures. And we thank you for this very interesting book of Malachi that you've put in your word. I pray that you would, as we journey through it, you would prove it to be profitable for us. We know that it's given for our benefit. And we pray we would benefit from our journey together through these inspired words. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us are interested in last episodes or the final episode of something. For example, in 1975, after 635 episodes, the TV series Gunsmoke came to an end with a story called The Sharecroppers. It was the last time Milburn Stone, who played Doc, ever appeared on TV. The last episode of Leave it to Beaver was in 1963 called Family Scrapbook. And when you know it's the last episode, you want to watch it and see it. In 1957, the show I Love Lucy came to an end. It came to an end as the number one rated show on TV. And when it ended in 1957, people wondered why. It was because of the fact that Lucy and Desi were not getting along. One of the people who was actually involved in filming the show said one of the biggest reasons that I Love Lucy ended was because the marriage of Lucille Ball and Desi was crumbling. One of the production people on the set said they couldn't even get through one scene without yelling at each other. Well, the last episode and book in the English Bible Old Testament is the book named Malachi. It's the last prophetic message God gives to his people before he closes the Old Testament. And it is not only the last book of the Old Testament, it's also the last book of the 12 minor prophet books. In fact, no one is going to hear from God again for about the next 450 years. Malachi was written about 450 years before Jesus Christ was born, and it's the last message that God gave to his people. It would be the last time God's people would hear from him for a long time, and of course the question is why? Why? Why was God just writing these books of the Bible and all of a sudden he just stops? It's like it ends. It's like Malachi's the last episode. Well, what you'll learn is that marriage between God and Israel was broken. The relationship was a mess. God did love his people, but the relationship was fractured. So God went silent for the next several hundred years. Just that fact alone that it's the last book of the Old Testament piques our interest. It makes us want to see it. It makes us want to study it. Since God knew he was not going to speak again for the next 400 plus years, what would he say? How do you end the Old Testament? And what would that Old Testament final message actually be? What makes this book even more intriguing is that it was written at a time when the world was experiencing a real moral decline and real religious decline. Oh, the people were physically and financially prospering. Religion was big. I mean, in fact, as you'll see in the book, religion was booming in Jerusalem. The temple was back up, but the people weren't spiritually right. The people were backslidden. The spirituality of the people was pathetic. It's kind of just like our day. So what would God say to people like that? What would his final message be? 
You may be surprised to discover how relevant this book is actually going to turn out to be. And in the next, oh, seven, eight weeks, we'd like to take you through this book of Malachi. Now, to introduce it to you tonight, I'd like to ask and answer four questions. And the first one is, why study the book? And I'm going to give you eight reasons. And you know the first one is because Malachi is an inspired book of God, and there are only 66 inspired books in existence. I want you to think of that when you think of any book of the Bible, especially Malachi tonight. This is written, inspired truth from God. It is about God. And it is about God, believe you me. There are 55 verses in the book of Malachi, and God is specifically named at least 53 times in those 55 verses. And those names that are used of God in this book stress the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is stressed in every book of the Bible, but these names really do emphasize the sovereignty of God. First of all, he's referred to as Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, which is Jehovah, the sovereign covenant God of Israel who can do whatever he wants to do. He's referred to as God, capital G-O-D, the sovereign creator of all things, the Elohim. He's referred to as Lord, capital L, small case O-R-D, Adonai, the sovereign controller of all things in the world, and he's referred to the Lord of hosts multiple times. In fact, he's referred to as the Lord of hosts. We saw it in Haggai, but he's referred to the Lord of hosts more in this book than in the other book in the Old Testament. And this title means he is in sovereign charge of all armies and powers in heaven and on earth. Over and over again, Malachi emphasizes this is what the Lord says. In fact, that's how the book begins. This is what the Lord said, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So it starts off with that. Stephen Miller, in his commentary, said Malachi's status as a book of God has never been questioned. And Robert Alden said Malachi is found in all the authoritative enumerations of canonical books. Now, a fragment of Malachi was found in 1952 in Qumran Caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was found in Qumran Cave number 4 and was found not including all 12 minor prophets, which proves the interest that people had in this book. The fragment included Malachi 2, 10 to 4, 6, and it shows us that the Israelites were carefully protecting this Malachi manuscript. Plus, the Septuagint, which translates the Hebrew into Greek in 250 B.C., is a close word-for-word translation to the Hebrew text, proving that it was carefully copied and preserved as a book of God. In AD 895, a Hebrew vowel-pointed text was found in Cairo that contained Malachi, and another one was found in AD 1000 in Leningrad. So Malachi is obviously a book that is an inspired book of God. It's referred to multiple times in the New Testament as being an inspired prophecy. So it's one of those rare books of God, and we're going to study it for that reason. It's one of those 66 rare inspired books that God has given to man. And I doubt seriously that too many people have spent a lot of time crawling through the verses of Malachi. So we're going to go through it because it's a word of God. Now, the second reason we're going to study it is because Malachi was written at a time when most of God's people were experiencing moral, social, and spiritual decline. The Apostle Paul made a very clear, interesting statement when he said that Old Testament scriptures were written for our instruction. And we also know that the Apostle Paul said that all scripture is profitable And it's profitable to develop our spirituality that we might be thoroughly furnished. So we can conclude 
that any book in the Bible, any Old Testament book in the Bible, which is part of Scripture, is for our benefit and for our value. This book was written at a time when God's people had tremendous freedom, just like our day. They had tremendous freedom. Things were good, but spiritually speaking, things were anything but good. There was a real decline in spirituality. And as you'll see, there was a real lack of reverence for God, a a real lack of the sense of awe of God. People were living loose and free. They lacked discipline. They lacked true biblical righteousness. In other words, I would say Malachi was written at a time just like ours. People have a lot of freedom, but they sure aren't using it much for the glory of God. What would God say to people like that? What would his last message be? Boy, we need to hear it because things in our world are just about the same. And what would God say? What would he need to say? Because what he's going to say apparently has the potential of turning things around. And boy, we sure need things turned around in our world. So we're going to study it for that reason. Thirdly, we're going to study it because it's a book that clearly reveals God loves his people. It starts off that way. We're going to look at that, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. But look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? That's just interesting to me. It's immediately clear when the book begins that God wants his people to know, Israel to know, I love you. Israel didn't understand the point because things weren't really going the way they thought they should. But God wanted his people to understand, I love you. God loves his people and that includes us. God's people need to realize that God's love is a distinguishing type of love. In fact, this answers a great question we'll see addressed next Wednesday night. Does God love all people in the world equally? And the answer is, no, he does not. No, he does not. You'll see that, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. God's love is a distinguishing type of love. He has a love for the world that provided his son on the cross, but then you also see a very particular kind of love that he has for his people. And God's people were obviously doubting that. They were obviously questioning that. They weren't thinking right on the subject about that. I mean, here they are with freedom in Jerusalem. Now remember this, this group, as we'll set the historical background for you tonight, was in Jerusalem free under the Persian captivity, free from the Babylonian captivity, and they're allowed to be back in this land, and yet they're saying, well, how does God love us? Well, he loved you enough to get you the freedom to go back to your land in the first place. You're living there and you're as blind as bat. You obviously can't see it. But God's people need to know the truth of God's love. What most people don't understand about the love of God is that the love of God is consistent with and contains God's warnings and God's judgment. See, that's what most people don't get about the love of God. God's love is not a love of total toleration. God's love is not a love that says, I don't care what my people believe and I don't care what my people do. That's not the love of God. True love that is like God's love is a love that confronts. It's a love that condemns things. It's a love that consults. God's love is anything but a total toleration kind of love. And these people were living loose and free and they weren't real serious about God and his word and his righteousness and they weren't real serious about reverencing God. And in fact, they were questioning God, questioning his love. And so God says, you need to understand something about my love. So we're going to study that because we need to understand that too. Now, a fourth reason we're going to study it is Malachi is a book that teaches how God's people should respond to God's love. 
In view of God's love and in view of God's election, and you're not going to be able to dodge the subject of election because we're going to be hit with it, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. In view of God's love and in view of God's election, God's people need to have hearts that are right with the Lord. And here's what we have the responsibility to do. We who know the Lord, who understand we're loved by God, we have the responsibility to honor God. We have the responsibility to reverence God. We have the responsibility to stand in awe of God. We have the responsibility to fear God. We have the responsibility to serve God. And we have a responsibility to want to be taught God's word. That is a series of themes that God will develop in this book of Malachi. In view of the fact that God loves his people, has elected his people, then we should be serious about him and his word. We need to honor him. We need to serve him. We need to offer him our best. We need to offer him our worship. When we go and give him offerings, it shouldn't be leftover slop, and God will address that point in this very book. We shouldn't be questioning God all the time. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God gets sick of hearing that from his people. That's what these people were doing. They were questioning God. Well, God, where's your justice? Where's your love? I mean, these people were enough to make all of us sick, but I think we're enough to make God sick. And God basically says, hey, that's not how you want to be responding to me. You want to be responding to me and understanding I am a sovereign God. I'm to be honored as God, not to be honored for the way you think I ought to be. You're to honor me for the way I reveal myself to be. So God basically says to his people, I'll give you a book that'll show you how you should respond to my love. We need to understand it. Now, a fifth reason is Malachi is a book that demands God's leaders be faithful. This is so important. It's possible, and you're going to meet these leaders here, these priests. It's possible for leaders to go through a lot of religious motions. I mean, a lot of religious stuff and not have hearts right with the Lord. There's a big difference between religious formalism and real spirituality. There's a big difference between people who just go through religious motions, but they don't have hearts right with the Lord. And this idea here of God demanding leaders to be faithful is not just a little suggestion, it's a serious warning. He will demand faithfulness from leadership. He expects leaders to give true instruction from his word to the people. He expects the leaders to honor him. Leaders have the potential of leading people into the blessings of God, and they also have the potential of leading people away from the blessings of God, right into the cursing and chastisements of God, and that is certainly something you're going to see in the book of Malachi. So we're going to study it because it's a book that tells leaders, hey, you keep watch over what you're doing and what you're thinking and how you're responding to me. Now, the sixth reason we're going to study this book is Malachi is a book of prophecy, and it makes predictions concerning the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. There are several prophetic references to future things in this book, and God promises that he's going to cause wonderful things to happen in future for Israel. And certainly, since he's going to go silent for the next 400-some years, 400-plus years, He wanted to leave his people with a document that basically said, I'm going to one day put down all of Israel's enemies, and I'm going to one day restore my people, and I'm going to send my deliverer to come to do that. 
In fact, it's only in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4 and in Isaiah 40 do we learn that the Messiah will be introduced by a forerunner. And Jesus Christ specifically quoted Malachi in pointing out John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy, and Luke also researched the life of Jesus Christ. He said the same thing. We also learn from Malachi that before Jesus Christ comes a second time, one of the prophets that will reappear is going to be Elijah, apparently. We believe in the Great Tribulation. He literally will appear in Jerusalem just exactly as Malachi predicts. So because it talks about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, I mean, there's a great verse that ends the book. Just flip over to the last verse of the book in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So here God says, I'm going to lift the curse and I'm going to bring about this tremendous peace, bliss that will exist at some point in the future. So that's just a wonderful promise, uh, prophetic prediction that's made here in the book of Malachi. Now the seventh reason we're going to study it is because Malachi is a book that reveals that God has a written list of names of people who fear him, esteem him, and serve him and honor him. Malachi talks about this particular book. You'll notice in chapter 3 and verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. That's a book of remembrance that God has for people who actually reverence God and feared God. And I take that to mean that not every believer's in that book. There are actually four books in the Bible that we know of that are kept a written record in heaven. You have, first of all, the book of life, which is the Lamb's book of life for all those who do believe in Jesus Christ. So anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is in the Lamb's book of life. Every name of a believer is in the Lamb's book of life. And then you have the book of condemnatory works for all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. That would be the list of works that people have done all of their lives, and God will call up the works books and analyze their life against his righteousness, and of course, they're going to lose. We'll see that in the Revelation. Then you have what's called the book of rejection of life for all those who reject the way of life. We saw that in Jeremiah. But then there's this book of remembrance for all believers who will be remembered for faithfulness. And that book shows up in Malachi. Now, I would assume that not every believer is going to be in that book, but you take a believer who fears the Lord, who honors the Lord, who does their best to worship the Lord at the highest level that they can, they will end up in that book of remembrance that shows up in this final book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi. So we're going to study it for that reason. This will actually give us guidance as to how to end up with our name in that book of remembrance. Now, the eighth reason we're going to study it is because Malachi is a book that asks probing, probing questions. It's a book that's filled with inspired questions. I counted, and I've listed them for you there, I counted 25 total questions that are asked in this book. Both God and Malachi ask questions, they're inspired questions, and then they give responses that people typically would get. Now, I think one of the best ways to teach and learn is through questions and answers, and that's kind of what we do in doctrine studies. That's what we do in many of the book studies. In these introductions of books, we ask and answer questions. I told you this before. When I went back to school, I asked my brother if he had a system of study because I didn't have one. 
And he said he'd been through multiple colleges. I said, I need some system of study because I just don't read a chapter and all of a sudden it magically appears the information in my mind so I can write an exam. He said, the system I use is I ask questions. I'll ask a question. What is this? I'll write the answer under it. What is this? Write the answer under it. Under it. And then cover it up. I studied Greek and Hebrew in every course I ever took that way. And I'd have Mary hold the paper, ask the question. The answer was under it. And when I knew I could answer all those questions, I knew I could ace any exam that was ever given. So asking and answering questions is a pretty good way to learn. And Malachi is known for this a series of questions that God is going to ask. Now, for example, in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 9, God is going to ask questions, and he will speak in the first person. I have loved you, but you say. Uh, But I have hated Esau. I have made this, but you say. So he will ask questions. In chapter 2, verse 10 to chapter 2, verse 15, Malachi will ask questions and speak in the first person plural, we, we and us. And then in... Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 6, God will ask questions and speak again in the first person, I. So you literally get questions here that God himself asks, and he will show the foolishness of his own people by asking a question or making a statement, then following up by some ridiculous or sarcastic response that the people would typically have. He will ask a question, and then he'll say, but you say this, I have loved you But you say, how have you loved us? I mean, here they are in Jerusalem with freedom, temples up, they have freedom to worship, their nice homes they're living in, and they came out of captivity to be there in that position, and they're asking him a stupid question, well, how have you loved us? Well, by virtue of the fact you're there, it shows that he loved you. It shows that he protected you, that he preserved you. Life is filled with all kinds of questions. And the key to a blessed life is having right answers. Right answers come from God's word. And Malachi is a book that asks questions, but it also gives right answers to those questions. So there's why we're going to study the book. Secondly, who's Malachi? Other than what we can discover in the book, there isn't a lot known about Malachi. Malachi's name in Hebrew is Malach, which means messenger. William Gassinius says the name means sent messenger of God. You add an I to the end of Malach, Malachi, or Malachi. It may mean my messenger, could be Jehovah's messenger, because sometimes the suffix I at the end of a word was a form of the divine name Jehovah. The word messenger shows up without the I at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. A sent messenger could be an angel, could be a prophet, could be a priest. So Malachi was given a name that means sent messenger. What we do know from verse 1 is that Malachi was a prophet of God who got an oracle. And you'll notice that from verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So Malachi got an oracle that he was supposed to take to Israel. He got that from God. Now, the word oracle, Messiah, in Hebrew is a word that speaks of something that's a load to bear. You put a load on somebody. It's something burdensome. So Malachi got a direct, revelatory, burdensome message from God, and it's his responsibility to write it and communicate it to the people of God. And probably the reason why we don't know much about him is because His name means messenger, and he's a messenger of God. And when a messenger comes to deliver a message, you typically aren't interested in his credentials. You want the message. J. Vernon McGee said that when some messenger shows up at your door to deliver a Western Union telegram, 
I don't even know if they do that anymore, maybe. But he used the illustration when a messenger shows up at your door to deliver a Western Union telegram, you typically don't say to the messenger, well, tell me about your family. I mean, what you want is the message. And really, that is what a real minister must be about, communicating the true message of God that's found in the Word of God. I mean, that's what a real spokesman for the Lord is supposed to do, supposed to open up and communicate what is in the Word of God. And that's a real problem today because some ministers are more concerned about bringing their message to the people, the ideas they've dreamed up, rather than bringing God's message to the people. But if ministers were concerned about that, they would concern themselves with accurately communicating all 66 books of the Bible to the people. That is the word of God to the people. So a real messenger of God should be about, let's just go through these books and communicate everything there to the people. And that's what Malachi does. He gets this burdensome message that he's going to take to the people. Now, when was Malachi written? There's no specific mention of any king or leader, like in some of the other books that enable us to pinpoint the date, but we can assume, in fact, this is one of the reasons I went to this book, that it was written around the time of Haggai and Zechariah, which would date it somewhere between 515 and 450 B.C. And one reason for dating the book here is the temple standing. So remember, when we went through Haggai, he challenged them to build the temple and get it rebuilt. Well, they got it rebuilt, and the temple's up, and these people are worshiping, and they had freedom to worship, and they're taking their offerings, as pathetic as they were, to the temple. And Haggai told the people to rebuild the temple in 520 B.C., so when Malachi was written, it's obviously after that the temple had been rebuilt. So this fits well into the time frame of Cyrus and Darius, who had permitted the Jews to go to Jerusalem, gave them the freedom and the encouragement to go back there and live and worship, and they were obviously doing that. They had their houses and they had their worship. What they didn't have was real spirituality. So what Malachi is going to say to them is, you know, you need to get your focus right here. You have all this wonderful freedom. You need to get your focus right here on the Lord, which brings us to the fourth question. What's the theme or purpose of Malachi? Well, let's do a little background from the history. You've already been through this in Haggai, so this will be kind of a repeat for you, but it does set the stage for the theme of the book. In 586 B.C., we know Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, he conquered Babylon and gave permission to all the Jewish exiles to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and establish their homes. And in 538 B.C., about 50,000 went back in their first year, and around 536 B.C., after a couple years back, they had laid the foundation of that temple. Well, then various threats and intimidations came against them, and their work stopped, and the people, as we saw in Haggai, got more interested in working on their own homes than in the worship of God. So in 520 B.C., God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, and Haggai and Zechariah, they went to the people of God and admonished them to rebuild the temple and worship God. And by 515 B.C., it was rebuilt. By 515 B.C., everything was fine, and they had the temple up, and they were worshiping the Lord. Well, about 60 years later, in about 460 B.C., Ezra came from Babylon to Jerusalem. He was a tremendous teacher of the Scriptures, very skilled in his understanding of the word of God, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 7. And he came to Jerusalem to reorganize and teach the people, and he was skilled. And at that time, a wall 
uh, was deteriorating. So about 13 years later, in 447 BC, Nehemiah got word that things were starting to deteriorate. So he went there and rebuilt the wall. He discovered when he got back there that there were people threatening, but that didn't stop him from refurbishing the wall. In fact, he completed it according to Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15. He got the project done in 52 days. Now, in the meantime, as all of these good things were physically happening, the people of God weren't really blossoming in their relationship with the Lord. I mean, they knew the truth. They were going to worship services and and they were giving God offerings, but the offerings were defiled. They were giving him slap offerings. Instead of taking them the best and giving God the best for all he had blessed them with, they were taking, as you'll see in chapter 1, they would take an animal that was lame, or they'd take an animal that was sick, they'd take an animal that was blind, they offered that to the Lord, and God said, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You've forgotten who's done all of this stuff for you. You don't you want to be giving me second-rate stuff. And so their problem was they had freedom and they're going to worship. That's not the problem. They're going through religious motions every time the temple area was open. The problem was their hearts were not right with the Lord, with the Lord. In fact, they got involved in some stuff that were more pagan than godly. Their kingdom has not been established yet. I mean, they're back in Jerusalem. They're still in some ways dominated by the Persians, but they weren't in total freedom uh, thinking that where's our kingdom? How come our king hasn't set up our kingdom yet? And so they start questioning God's love for them. Mere God had done all this stuff for them and they're questioning God's love. They're questioning his justice. Where's your justice, God? How come you're allowing these bad things to happen to us, God? And God says, you better take a serious look at yourself because you got an issue. And the issue is you aren't right with me. Don't you be questioning me, God says. Don't question me about my love and my justice. You need to understand I've been blessing you. I'm the one who's been doing all the good things in your world. So God says, Malachi, I got a job for you to do. You go to those people and you straighten them out. You go to those people and you unleash my word that exposes their superficial religious way of thinking. I mean, they, they go to these religious services and go through the motions, but they don't have hearts right with me. Now, God's goal for his people was that they would become a kingdom of priests who would be blessed by him in every way. In fact, he'll end the book by saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to lift the curse. And I'm going to one day have great peace that will be in the land. But his people weren't manifesting the kind of lifestyle that would prompt God to do this. And then you had the religious leaders. They aren't helping much because they aren't pointing people in the right true ways of the Lord. They weren't leading people in the right way. I mean, they had knowledge and they had worship and they had their rituals and they had their ordinances. However, the people weren't acting like people of God who love the Lord. They're questioning things. There are a lot of questions in this book. That's why God will beat him to the punch. Here's what I say, but here's what you're going to say. You're going to ask this question to this. You're going to speak foolishly. And as a result, God says, you don't give me the reverence I deserve. You don't give me the honor I deserve. These people were loose. 
They were pursuing things that were immoral. They weren't worshiping God with right attitudes. They lost sight of the fact that God is supposed to be held in high regard. God is supposed to be held in reverence. I mean, look at chapter 2, verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. That's what God's people are supposed to do. They're supposed to revere God and stand in awe of God, not be running around like a bunch of sniveling little wimpy people and questioning God, questioning God. Where are you, God? Don't you love us? Where's your justice, God? God says, you take a look at yourself. The primary theme here is God calls leaders and people, you get your hearts right with me. You get your hearts right with me. And if you get your hearts right with me, I will bless you. Leaders and people need to understand this. Leaders and people need to understand that God says you need to upgrade your theology, you need to upgrade your life, and you need to refocus on me. Quit questioning my love, God says. In fact, he'll blast right out of the book, Lord willing, next Wednesday night with that idea. Quit questioning my love for you. Stop questioning my justice. You know, I'm afraid, I'm fearful for people that are in Christianity. That's all they're doing. I really think a great number of people, that's all they're doing. They're spending their life watching the news, questioning God. God said, you know what? You're focused on the wrong thing here. What you need to be focused on is me. Start reverencing me. Start standing in awe of me. Start talking to me. Start concerning yourself with when you're going to worship me in a heart that's right with me. In other words, start focusing on your own spiritual righteousness. That's the oracle that you're going to see Malachi take to the people of God before God signs off the Old Testament. Well, our time is gone tonight, and thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.